Our sermon text today is from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you have your Bible, please turn to 2 Samuel 6. You can find this in the Pew Bible on page 241. 241. Uh, today we're going to finish up this section of the series on 1 and 2 Samuel and hit pause after today uh, to spend December thinking about Christmas and uh, talking about some of the high points of the New Testament as it relates to the birth of Jesus But we will be returning back to Samuel on January 7th, so don't worry, we will get back to it. Uh, But today we have a very good place to hit pause because it gets to the heart of what David's reign was all about, the reason why David was king. Uh, He's not just king in order to bring political blessing to Israel. He wasn't just king to bring military might, Uh, but David was king to restore God's presence with his people, which is a greater blessing than all the rest. And so this is the story of David bringing the ark up from where it was stored for years to to Jerusalem. And it has to do with the presence of God in the midst of us. So I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll talk about that theme as we look at the entire chapter. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bala Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the ark, uh, the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of God come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. This past Wednesday was the 60th anniversary of a very, very famous, infamous parade that went through the streets of Dallas, Texas. You may already know what I'm talking about, but on that day, the presidential motorcade was going down the road, and John F. Kennedy was riding with his wife in an uncovered limousine. Uh, Lyndon Johnson and his wife were in another car. The governor of Texas and his wife were with the president. And Dallas was simply buzzing with excitement. There were tens of thousands of people on the streets. They went on a nearly eight-mile route through the city as everybody cheered and sang and called out and waved. And everybody was just trying to get a glimpse of a very popular president. So it seemed. Uh, You probably know, even if you weren't there, even if you weren't even alive, you know what happened that fateful day. Three shots rang out, or something like that rang out, and John F. Kennedy was assassinated right on camera in front of not only those people in Dallas, but the whole world. That day is burnt into the memory of America. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, you can, you, you, like I said, you can be a kid and you weren't even thought of at that time, and yet you know that John F. Kennedy was assassinated during a parade. A joyous occasion turned dark, and it burned into a nation's memory. Well, think about that. I I think what we just read from 2 Samuel 6 was a similar event in the life of the nation of Israel. This event must have burnt into their memory. Here was a joyous occasion, the king of Israel parading through the streets, headed to Jerusalem with nothing less than the very Ark of the Covenant of God so that he could restore that ark to its central place in the life of the nation. Everybody was breaking out in song. I mean, they had all the instruments going. It was a party. And right in the middle of the celebration, a tragic and untimely death. What the scripture says was God's own anger kindling against Uzzah where he struck him down because of his error beside the ark of God. The Israelites would not have been able to think about the ark for generations to come without thinking about the death of Uzzah 
And here we are, y'all, 3,000 years after it happened, and we're still talking about it. What does it mean, though? Well, it means this, and I want to talk to you about it and try to make this case for you today, that this means that the presence of God with his people is the greatest blessing that he can ever give us. The presence of God is the greatest blessing he can ever give us. But, listen, the presence of God comes with some strings attached. It comes with some things you got to think about and you got to be careful about and you got to set your heart right before the presence of God comes or you won't be prepared and tragedy might break out in your life. And so let's look together at the three things that are in the bulletin, uh, three questions that get answered in our story. Uh, first of all, why should we long for God's presence in the way that David did? Secondly, how does God's presence come to us? And of course, how doesn't it come? And then lastly, when it does come, what do we experience? All right, so why should we long for it? How does it come? And then how or what should we experience when it does come? All right, so first of all, uh, David longed for the presence of God more than anything else, and we should too. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, where it tells us that David again, do you see the word again? David again gathered all Israel, about 30,000. So that word again means David has been gathering the people for many different reasons up till now. In fact, we talked about a little bit last week as Tim uh, preached on... Uh, the story of David's anointing. Uh, all the nation of Israel had gathered to crown David as king. Uh, at the end of chapter 5, right there in front of what we read, David gathered the people twice to fight the Philistines. And in both cases, he beat the Philistines with an almost miraculous victory, and everybody was celebrating those victories. But here in verse 1, it says, David again gathered them, this time... Not for political reasons, this time not for military reasons, but for worship reasons. And there's a lesson that begins to emerge from this. It tells us in verse 2, David arose with this crowd gathered and he went to Bale Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. The ark which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Look at that fancy name for the ark there in verse 2. It's an exalted name. The name of the Lord of the angel armies who sits above the cherubim and yet who is present in the midst of his people. That was what the ark represented. The ark was a relatively, well, kind of unimpressive piece of furniture if you think about it. It was a box about four feet long, about three feet wide, and about two feet deep. It's not a very big box. It was made out of wood, and yes, it was overlaid with gold, but even with the gold, it must not have looked like much. And yet, it represented something that was extremely weighty. God intends to give his people his very presence. And notice how David does not believe that simply securing a political stability is enough for his people. He does not believe that securing military peace is enough for Israel. No, the people of Israel do not have what they need until they have God in their midst. And I want you to understand that for your life too. Jesus said famously, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's actually a great commentary on the story this morning. 
You can put in the blank there where it says bread. You can put in the blank almost anything. Man shall not live by 401ks alone. <laughs> right? You, you can go with this. Man shall not live by a good career alone. Man shall not live by 3.5 kids in a picket fence alone. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what you put there. You cannot have your life fully satisfied or sustained without a connection at a deep level with your maker. And the Ark of the Covenant was God's promise in picture form, in tangible form, that God wanted to be with his people as Lord. He's a king who sits on a throne. He's there as Savior because that that seat of the throne was called the mercy seat and the blood of the sacrifices were sprinkled on it to show that God's people were saved and brought into his presence, cleansed. And God was going to be in the midst of his people as the lawgiver. There were strict rules about how to approach the ark and how to handle the ark. Your life requires God's presence. Do you long for it or not? David speaks about this in many of his psalms. He says things like, My soul longs, yea, even faints, O Lord, for your courts. My soul is like a man in the desert in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I hunger and thirst for you. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. When shall I go and appear before God, he asks in one of the Psalms. In another psalm, he says he remembers the days when he used to go to the house of the Lord with God's people. But for some reason, he was prevented. And so his heart, he says, was broken because he was not able to appear with God's people in the presence of God. David, if you cut, it, cut him open, longed to have God placed back where he belonged. You see, the Ark of the Covenant had been in storage, basically. For 20 to 30 years after it had been stolen by the Philistines. They were almost too afraid to move it, and maybe rightfully so. But it sat in the house of Abinadab for 20 to 30 years, almost collecting dust. The Israel not gathering around it, not going to worship in God's appointed way. And David had its heart set on restoring and remedying that situation. And so the same should be true of us. Oftentimes, we go through life wanting God's gifts, but not wanting his presence. Do you see the difference? We want God to do stuff for us. Oh, Lord, come and help me. Lord God, come and heal me. Lord, make me happy. Make me satisfied with the stuff of this life. But we don't say with David, God, just give me your face. Your face will I seek, God, because it's your face that brings true blessing. And yet, if David is a man after God's own heart, he is a model for us of what we were created to be. Humanity in the Garden of Eden knew the face of God without fear. But we have now lost that face by our sin and rebellion. And the only way, the ark shows us, the only way for it to be restored is by the sprinkled blood and the willing coming down of God to dwell right in our midst by grace. Does your soul long for that? 
or are you trying to live by bread alone? By the way, you say, well, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant today. Oh, we have better. Please don't get distracted by that. The Ark of the Covenant was a temporary box until Jesus came. Now we've got the better thing. Did you know as a Christian, when you're alone reading your Bible and praying, you got the Ark of God? Did you know when you gather your family around the dinner table and you pray, you got the ark of God? Did you know even more especially when we come here? And it's not because of this place. It's not that this is holy ground or something. But the fact that God's people are gathered two or more in his name and God promised I will be there, that makes this place an even greater occasion of the ark of God appearing among us. Do you long for it? Do you faint for it? Do you thirst for it? All right, that's the first thing, why we should long. Now, secondly... How do we get the presence of God? And this is where it gets complicated. The story gets complicated. Starting in verse 3, it tells us that the party was well underway. The ark had been placed on the new cart. Abinadab had sent his two sons, one ahead and one behind the cart, Uzzah and Ahio. David is celebrating with all the people. They are, in verse 5, singing songs. They're Basically, they have a full band going on, you know, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, cymbals. You can imagine the sound, the, just the, uh, the, the sense of excitement as Israel is going up, up the hill towards Jerusalem with this, this symbol of God's presence in their midst. And then, boom, the cart hits a pothole. And... As the oxen stumble, the, the ark starts to tip. And Uzzah, probably with good intentions, reaches out with his hand to grab a hold of the ark to keep it from falling. And no sooner had he touched it than, boom, everybody knew it. No one said, oh, man, it just so happens he had a heart attack. Everybody knew it. God was the one who struck him. I don't know how he died. doesn't tell us. But however it was, they knew it. God had put him to death. The anger of the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Well, that's a, that's a screech of the record on the needle. <laughs> right? And, and it may be that, that our response to reading this story is very similar to David's response of living it. I mean, David, it says, was angry at first. And then it turned into fear. And then it eventually turned into self-pity. If you'll look at verse 9, the self-pity of, well, how can the ark ever come to me? If this is the way God is going to be, if he's going to be this strict, if, if things are going to be this hardcore, then how can I ever know God? How can the ark ever be restored to its rightful place in Israel? Nobody can know God's presence. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to forget the ark. And it says that he turned the ark into another house, the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, more than likely a Philistine, because he's called a Gittite. Wow. Do you see how this goes? Self-made joy, human hype, human just simply emotionalism that's whipped up by a good progression of chords on a lyre or a guitar is gone just as quick as it arrives when it's not placed in the Lord. 
One writer says, God struck Uzzah this way because Israel needed to be corrected in such a way as to make it clear that God is to be worshipped in spirit and in letter in the manner appropriate to his exalted character, his everlasting covenant love, and his eternal majesty. And the point of fact is, it tells us there in verse 7, which is a key verse, that God struck down Uzzah because of his what? What does it say in verse 7? His error. Now, now I think the word error seems awful pedestrian in this case. It's just, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that they translated error because error makes me think of baseball, right? He, he, he missed the ball as it was coming by, like a, just a mistake. I like how the NIV translates it, because of his irreverent act. That's more likely. After all, listen, this is not, this is not lying. In, in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy, when the ark was made, God said, I quote, do not touch the ark, period. Whatever you do, don't touch it. In fact, don't look at it. And so when you move it, you're supposed to cover it with the veil. The high priest alone can look at it. He covers it with the veil. He puts the poles in the, the rings that were designed on the outside on both sides. The priests alone, the Levites, were supposed to pick up the ark on the poles, not touching it, not seeing it, and walk it as they offer worship and sacrifices along the way. We are not told at the beginning of verse six, chapter 6 that any of that was done at first. They were completely disregarding God's rules for how to approach him. And here's the lesson. If you want the presence of God, you cannot get it on your own terms. You must get it on his terms. Terms which he has, whether you think it or not, terms which he has clearly defined in his word. And the reason you don't think it's clearly defined is you probably haven't gone searching hard enough. I mean, think about it. Uzzah had had the ark of God in his dad's living room for 30 years. Don't you think at some point they opened up numbers or Deuteronomy to read? What should we do with this thing? It's likely that Uzzah had no excuse. Instead, he was acting out of self-will and pride. As one of my seminary professors said, he thought that his hand must be better than the dirt of the ground. And actually, that's the one thing he was wrong about. The sinful hand of man cannot touch the presence of a holy God and cannot even enter the presence of a holy God on their own terms. It must be done in the way that God has appointed. The blood must be sprinkled. The priest must go and intercede. Right? It must be veiled. We must come humbly bowing down. The music that we sing must be reverent. It must not be just a, just a cacophony of noise. There's got to be a purpose to it. There's got to be something to it that's driving it. And they disregarded all of that, thinking that they knew what was right, that they could figure out how to get God on their own terms. It's like someone trying to walk straight into the Oval Office to sit down with the president. Good morning. Hey, Joe, how you doing? And all of us know that that shouldn't happen. Why? Because it's a danger to that person. It's a danger to president. the president. It's a danger to everybody. If anybody can just walk in however they want to, whenever they want to. 
And so for a presidential visit, there is a very specific protocol of how to do it. And if that's true of the president of the U.S., that is even more times a thousand true of the God of the universe. It is dangerous to us to approach him on our own terms. Think about this, y'all. Sincerity does not make up for obedience. All right? It doesn't. Um, so many people assume that they please God because, well, I mean well, so God will accept me. Ask Uzzah about that. God does not care much about our intentions if our actions and our actual beliefs are not in line with his word. Intentions mean very little to God because he knows that anybody with the right progression of chords can work up a good case of the goosebumps. And that's not what God is after. God is after a heart broken by sin and open with hands of faith to accept the sacrifice that God provides. To come to God ready to obey and submit to his will. That's what God's looking for. God's rule, God's appointed mediator with the sacrifice that God has appointed for God's glory. The Bible lays out the way that we come to him. We come to him through Jesus Christ alone by humbly submitting ourselves to his will and direction. And so we all have to think, when we read about Uzzah, this event that was burned onto the memory of Israel, it should be burned onto the memory of the Christian church too. We approach a God who is a consuming fire. If we really knew what was going on in church, we'd wear hard hats. Holy ground, a God of infinite majesty, but also a God of deep and abiding grace. Where in your life are you unwilling to accept God's terms? Is it in the area of worship, private or public worship? Is it in the area of your morals? And is it in the area of your sexual practices? Is it in, in the area of how you use your money or how you do business? Where are you not willing to accept the terms of God? And why aren't you willing? That's the second thing, how God's presence comes, only by his terms. Let's go to the last. When it does come, what do we experience? Well, I want you to notice how David's self-pity was broken. Look at verse 12. Remember, David is sulking for three months at his house. He's gone back home. He says, I can't do it. How am I supposed to bring the ark of God? I tried really hard. I meant well, and God didn't accept it. I guess I'm never going to be able to do this for the Lord or for the people. I'm just going to pout. And then it says, verse 12, after three months, it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. What news, right? I mean, what do you think went off in David's mind when he heard that? That's what I wanted to happen. <laughs> That's what I was trying to have happen, and it didn't happen, so why didn't it happen? Well, I, apparently I wasn't doing it with the right heart 
or, or in, the, in the way that God had prescribed. I need to think about that and retrace my steps and think about how to do it better. Because obviously somebody can do it better because Obed-Edom is getting blessed. Nobody's dying at his house. It, blessings are being poured out on his head. In other words, David must have woken up to, to something that every one of us need to wake up to. When God gives rules, and sometimes they're strict rules, he's not just giving them just to be strict. And he's also not giving them so that he can strike people dead. God gives his rules to show the way to joy. The fact that we get struck dead and we don't have joy is just because we disregard the rule, not because of the rule itself. David must have been awakened to the grace of God. Here's God blessing even a Philistine family because apparently they had enough reverence to handle the ark better than we did. How convicting, but also how hopeful. Listen, there is a way into the presence of God where you don't die. There is a way into the presence of God that will never end. And a way into the presence of God that will bring a fullness of joy that no one can take away from you. And that's what happens. David, it says, when he heard that, went and brought up the ark of God. I bet Obed-Edom was sad to see it go. And he brought it into the city of David rejoicing. He did it the right way. They were bearing the ark, it says. They weren't putting it on a, on a cart. They were bearing it as priests. We have to assume it was covered. And after they had gone six steps, they offer a sacrifice of an ox and a fattened animal. They, they worship according to God's rule, not according to their own desires. Some people think that this doesn't just mean they did it after the first six steps, but maybe after each six steps, they offered another sacrifice. I'm not sure which one it is. Either way, you get the point. They were doing this carefully, reverently. The only way we can come before God is if something dies in our place. If blood is there to sprinkle the throne of grace. And it says David went with a linen ephod. Verse 14, and danced before the Lord with all his might. He took off his kingly robes. That's what that means, okay? Please, you know, I know it's, a, it's commonly said that David danced naked before the Lord. That is not the case. He was not naked. I'm sorry to disappoint anybody who thought that. He simply took off his kingly garments and put on the garments of a priest, which priests were designed to dress like servants because they were servants of God. They were wearing plain white linen robes. And here's David with a plain white linen robe, dancing with all his might, now with a joy that didn't merely come from human manufacture, now with a joy that came from the gospel of free grace exploding in his heart. We've been accepted because a sacrifice has been offered. Let's dance. Let's sing. Let's praise. Let's sound the horn. Let's go. God is among us at his own cost, on his own terms. Let's send out a Thanksgiving care basket to everybody in Israel. He sent out meat and bread and even uh, raised a fruitcake so that everybody could celebrate with joy that day. That is, everybody except those who did not care a thing about the Lord. And so there's Michael. 
David's wife, Saul's daughter. Verse 16, she looked out the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. This is true today, just as it was then. True worship will always be seen by the world as either A, stupid, or B, dull, or maybe both. Michael believed it was stupid what David did. Not because he was naked. She doesn't actually say that. But because he uncovered himself with his kingly robes to put on the robes of a mere servant alongside the other servants. And she was particularly irked that there were servant girls alongside and around David as he danced. She couldn't see past her own interests, to see what David was doing. The king of Israel was displaying what every true king and every true person is supposed to display. In the presence of God, there are no kings. There are only servants. In the presence of God, there is no self-exaltation. There's only humbling. And David willingly humbled himself. He won't even call himself a king. He calls himself a prince in verse 21, which means he's the lower king under the bigger king. That's how David sees himself as he dances before the Lord. Wow. Now think about this for us. We already said earlier that joy that is manufactured by human invention and human just hype will easily pass away as soon as opposition comes. But here we see Joy that is given by God in God's way, by God's terms, is a joy that not even enemies can take away. When Michael says, David, how dare you? David says, because I'm dancing before the Lord and I will continue to celebrate before the Lord. In fact, he says, I will become even more contemptible in your eyes. In other words, I'm going to lower myself lower. You think I'm humbled now? Just watch. I'm going to get humbler and humbler and humbler the more I'm in the presence of God. The joy of the Lord is going to humble me to the dust. And those who understand God are going to honor me because they see that true human honor comes through humility, not through self-exaltation. But you, you're probably only going to see me making a fool of myself because everybody who doesn't understand God will always think true and genuine worship, the heartbroken before God, is stupid and dull. But those who truly worship know it is where the life of the world is found. Because the life of the world is found in those who humble themselves before the Lord. In fact, there is one who humbled himself lower than David did. In fact, he humbled himself from a higher position than David ever had. I'm talking about Jesus, great David's greater son, the great king of Israel. I believe David in this story is a living foreshadowing and parable of Jesus and what he would do. Scripture says Jesus does restore us to the presence of God. How? By taking off the royal garments of his godhood and putting on the servant's garments of his manhood. He took up the form of a servant and he danced his obedience before the Lord. 
And then at the end of of it all, he offers up, after six steps, he offers up his own life as a sacrifice on the cross so that at his resurrection, he might bring the ark of God back to its place in heaven and bring us there with it. Don't you see it? This is a picture of the gospel. So many parts of the Bible are this way, by the way. In the Old Testament, after all, God's in control of every event. And so every event that's happening is, is happening for a reason. It's showing you in many ways in the Old Testament what's going to happen in the New. And here, it's pointing our, our faith, not just to David. David's a good model of what we should be. But it's pointing our faith beyond David to Jesus who came into the world to make a way into God's presence on God's terms by obeying God's law for us and offering himself up as a sacrifice, which was accepted by God. The Bible says his blood sprinkles the throne of grace in heaven, not on earth, and that he stands now in heaven interceding for us so that we can come in with boldness. But here's the catch. And it's not really a catch. If you understand it, it's not a catch. It's a joy. The fullness of joy that the Lord brings in that way by giving you his presence is one that will always lead to humility on your part. Which is why when we approach God in worship, although it says we should do it with boldness, and we should, it ought to be a God-directed boldness. It ought to be an obedient boldness, not a self-righteous drummed up just by the right chord progression, but a real heart opened and then healed by the grace of God. I thought this week, and I'm thinking that even now as I'm saying this, where in my life am I still trying to wear the regal robes of my self-exaltation in my own personal kingdom? And where am I avoiding taking up the robes of a servant right alongside our Lord Jesus? Wherever I'm doing that is a place where I'm not able to dance with all my might. I'm not able to rejoice. It's going to kill my joy. Don't you see it? God's commandments were given for our joy. Because God's way leads right into his very presence. The ark of God. The face of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.